Now, grab your Bibles, Romans chapter 13. You guys, I know you're excited about this. Uh, there, are, there are two things, I'm going to tell you, there's two things you don't talk about as we get into the holiday season, and it's religion and politics, right? As your families gather together, those are hot topic items, and so we're going to talk about both today. Get excited. Uh, it's good to see a lot of orange out there in the, in the uh, congregation. Um, I'll win you back with that one, right? A living sacrifice. As we've talked about this, this is Paul's application. We've gone through all of this doctrine. Uh, we've walked through this, and now there's the application of if Christ has done this for us, then how do we live now? And so we live as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. It is our reasonable act of worship. And so what does a reasonable act of worship look like? And he lays it out. He goes all the way through chapter 12, and now it feeds into chapter 13 as it pertains to the government and how we love one another and how we live in light of eternity. And so Romans 13 is not a political regulation that we follow. I want you to understand that. But it's more of a Christian's responsibility as it pertains to living as a sacrifice. So what we need to remember is that we are citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a king. We have one that we bow to. We have one that we are under his authority, and we long and await his return. And as we do so, we live in a world that has other governing authorities. And so as we seek to live out that, we seek to live out in a way that shows honor and respect. Tim Keller says it's important to recognize that Paul is not giving us a discussion of church-state regulations in this section, rather, he's giving us instruction to individual Christians about their personal citizenship. He's not addressing civil magistrates or even Christian civil magistrates. There weren't any at that time. So Paul's not laying out specific answers to thorny problems of church and state that have troubled us for centuries. This is simply Paul's, Paul's call to the Christian to be a living sacrifice and to live honorably where he has placed you. So how do believers... Show honor to governing authorities when we don't always agree with their leadership, their politics, and their policies. This is a difficult question. And so I want to start by saying we are showing honor to authority as a living sacrifice. When we put our lives on the altar to live for Jesus Christ, we show honor to those who are due honor. Let's begin reading there, and let's read verses 1 through 7 to begin. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will, re you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to the very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. 
And we ask, God, that you would bless our time as we walk through it, that you would give us instruction, you would give us understanding, that your spirit would soften our hearts in areas that we have hardened it. Father, help us to be a people who live as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, that we would put aside our agendas and we would lay ourselves at your feet for your will and for your good. In Christ's name, amen. A living sacrifice honors authority. The first section I want you to see in this is that Paul teaches the government's authority is a God-given authority. The government's authority is a God-given authority. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. He says that right there in the very first verse. The governing authorities are set there by God. This is why Peter in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 15 would say, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So even Peter says, listen, when it comes to this, for the Lord's sake, we show honor. For the Lord's sake, we submit to the governing authorities. For the Lord's sake, we are a witness in the way we handle even these difficult, sticky situations. By the looks on your faces, we love talking about the government. I, I can just tell, like, this is so... This is exactly what you came to hear today. As we talk about authority, Kevin D. Young says there's three great societies on earth, the, the home, the church, and the state, each of which has its authority from God. Within the home, children obey their parents, and the husband is the head of the wife. Within the church, the elders exercise loving authority over the sheep. Within the state, there are civil magistrates to exercise governing authority over people. These magistrates may be called kings or queens or governors or presidents or the police. But regardless of the political arrangement, the idea is the same. Government's authority comes from God. We see this in Daniel 4.17 where he says, The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Sometimes... God places people in charge that we would have not placed in charge. But God is the one who places people in authority. So we see that it's an authority that is from God. And so that authority is generally a good authority. So the government's authority is a God-given authority that is generally a good authority. And I say generally a good authority because, generally speaking, this is what this section talks about, as the government is set up to do what is generally good for the people. Therefore, verse 2, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority, then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So what Paul says here is, we must be in subjection to the, those who God has put in authority because it's part of God's wrath. If you do wrong, you will be punished, but also for a good conscience, knowing that you are living a life that is honorable not only to the government and those who are in authority, but a, a life that is living honorable as a living sacrifice to God. I am doing what is good 
generally good for the sake of giving glory to God. This is what he is saying here. So generally good. Now, generally good describes how the governing authorities should function in a general good for the society. This is how they should function. The primary responsibility of the government is to restrain and punish evil. This is the this is the general good of the government. It is not God's design that there would be complete anarchy where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. This is not his order. This is not he's, how he set things up. He has a general good that he wants where evil is punished and good is rewarded. The primary responsibility of the government is the safety, the security, and the maintaining of social order in the face of sin. The face of sin in the life of people is anarchy. It is Casting off restraint. It is rebellion. It is my way is better than your way. And this is why God has placed authority over us. For rulers are not a terror, verse 3, to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive approval. How many of us, as we travel down the interstate and we're we're going at what we think is the appropriate speed. And we see a state trooper instantly look at the speedometer as, oh, how fast am I going? Or you hit the brake just out of reflex. Anyone with me? No, you're all perfect. Good. Okay. So there's this gut check that you get when you see the state trooper there because you know that there's a fear. Oh, I probably was not doing what is right. And this is, this is what Paul said. If you don't want to have fear then just follow the rule. 70. 70, right? 70 is a reasonable speed. You can get there in plenty of time if you go 70. And some of us are like, no, no, 78. 78 sounds good to me. And then we live in fear because we're not submitting ourselves to that rule. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he who does not bear the sword in vain... For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Not only are you not going to be punished for wrongdoing, but you can live with a clear conscience knowing that you've done what is right. And there is such beauty and healing in that. This is how we live honorably. Paul would say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, one through three. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. So as we seek to live honorably, we make supplications, we make prayers, we intercede, we give thanks for the things that God has placed over us because it is good. And in doing good, it's pleasing in the sight of God. So if the government is God's authority, God-given authority, that is generally a good authority, then we should be honoring it. It should be honored. This is how we should live in light of the government that's been placed over us. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to the very thing. Pay to all what is owed. 
To them, taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honor, to whom honor is owed. Christians are to be a witness in our willingness to do what is honorable and right. Honor is owed to the office and to the authority and to the people that are given that respect. When the office's political ideologies we find as dishonoring does not cause us an escape from showing honor. I, I think about David as he's being pursued by King Saul. And King Saul is, for all for all practical purposes, has kind of lost it a little bit. And he's trying to hunt down David and kill him. And David's response is, that's my king. I will show him honor. So who is Paul writing to? How can Paul say these things? Because we're here wrestling in a post-Christian Western culture. And how do I show honor when I do not agree or approve of what is being done? How, how do I do that? Well, Paul's writing to Roman citizens. And you think about this, he's writing to Roman citizens, Roman Christians in the first century, and none of the leadership there would have been Christian. They would have not been influenced by, you know, Christian culture or Christian upbringing. None of those things. In fact, it was probably written in Rome, Romans was probably written in 57 AD, right around there. And uh, leading up to this, in the, in the church era, the Romans government would have had a leader called Caligula. Now, Caligula, he was the Roman emperor from 37 A.D. to roughly 41 A.D. And this was the kind of guy this guy was. You ready? Early into his reign, he began to order the deaths of others whom he perceived to be rivals or threats to his throne, including multiple family members. He openly committed incest with three of his sisters. He frequently would cross-dress and go out into public. His behavior became increasingly tyrannical and erratic, bordering on insanity, so much so that he appointed a horse, his favorite horse, to the Roman council. He even began to appear in public dressed up as various Roman gods, referring to himself as a god and making people, even the senators, worship him at that time. I don't know if I can honor that, do you? That'd be really hard. Well, let's see. He, he finally, you know, passes on to Claudius, and his reign was from 41 to 54. And then after Claudius, there's a guy by the name of Nero. Nero would have been serving as emperor during this time. You may have heard about Emperor Nero. Nero, of course, turns out to be one of the most wicked and cruelest and sadistic Christian killers of all time when it comes to leadership. He intentionally set on fire, as it's perceived to believe, that he set, on, he set Rome on fire and then blamed the Christians for the burning. And when he blamed them for the burning, that gave him the ability to then crucify them for what they had done. And once he even put Christians on stakes to set them on fire to be streetlights or to light up his garden. Another time he got mad and he kicked his pregnant wife until she died. He felt bad about that, so he later took a boy who looked similar to his wife and castrated him and married the boy, calling him his wife's name. This is the context in which Romans is written. You guys look mortified. And we have a hard time sometimes submitting to the authorities that have been put over us. But it is a Christian witness to recognize that all authority is a God-given authority. And all authority is generally a good authority to punish the wicked and to reward the good. And so it should be honored and respected 
But yet we have a hard time, especially this time of year, even in the midterms. Tony Morita says many profession Christians essentially lose their mind when it comes to politics. They fail to see the God who is over the government. Should we engage in political process? Yes, of course. Speak truth and power? Yes, when possible. But freak out and make an idol out of a party or a system? No way. We serve a different king. We bow a knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we await his return. And so how we handle ourselves, even in times like this, is a witness to a world about who our God is. Should we post hateful speech on social media because we don't agree with things? No. That's not how Christians should act. That's not honoring. That's not God-honoring. Should we pursue, promote, and vote for and champion ideas and policies that hold to a Christian value? Yes, we should. We should also realize that sometimes God gives governing authorities over people not for the blessing but for the punishment of their sinful actions. As Jeremiah in 29, 4-7, just before that really wonderful verse that we like to take out of context, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So as we live as exiles here awaiting our home, we pray. We pray for our country. We pray for our cities. We pray for our governments. We pray for those who, are in, who God has appointed in leadership. And we build houses and we plant gardens and we marry and we send our kids off and we grow knowing that one day we await a king who will return. This is what he said to those who were sent to Babylon into the belly of the beast. Jesus was once questioned about the, the difficulty of honoring authority when it's the Roman government and when it came to Judaism. And so he was questioned about taxes. Mark chapter 12, 13 through 17, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in this talk. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So they're buttering him up. You hear this? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. As believers, we are to honor. We are to show respect. We are to show submission. And one of the ways we do that is by paying taxes, even if we do not agree with what the tax dollars go for. We are to give to the government what is theirs. And we are to give to God what is his. 
we bear the image of God. We were made and created in his image and our entire life is his. This is why a living sacrifice shows honor. A living sacrifice shows honor. But, you're waiting for it, weren't you? But, what if the government is enforcing something that goes against the authority of God and his word? What if God being the ultimate authority, this ultimate umbrella who has set up a governing authority underneath him, what if that governing authority tries to step aside to get out from underneath his authority and try to do their own thing? What then? John Stott said it this way, we are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. But if the state commands that what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. I say that, and I say that that's, in our context, often few and far between. But as you go throughout Scripture, you see stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow a knee. You see Daniel who wouldn't stop praying. You see Peter in the New Testament saying that we must obey God over man when they told him to be quiet. This is the same Peter who in 1 Peter 2.17 says, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. There's honor and there's obedience to the word of God. If the government forbids us to do what God commands or requires us to do that which God forbids, we must obey God rather than men. Paul Carter said that. This reminds me of the story about the midwives in Exodus. Are you familiar with this? Pharaoh commanded them to murder all the Hebrew babies that were male. This would be the equivalent of a modern-day mass abortion issued and funded by the government. And the midwives wouldn't do it. It says this in Exodus 1, 15 through 20. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. As Danny Aiken says, as a devoted follower of Jesus, I will say yes to obeying the government and paying taxes to Caesar, but I will say no to disobeying the word of God and worshiping a man or an institution. Independence Day for the Christian is not marked by a flag. No, our Independence Day is Easter, marked by a cross and a resurrection. So as a living sacrifice, we show honor to authority and number two, we love neighbor. A living sacrifice loves neighbor. Verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. 
first thing you can, you can see under the, the living sacrifice loves a neighbor is as believers in Christ, we owe each other love. We owe each other love. There is a debt that you will always owe. It's love. You'll never pay it off. You can say you love your neighbor as yourself, but if you're withholding a debt from that neighbor, that's not very loving. If you owe somebody something, you keep your word and you pay your debt as a witness of Christ and his goodness and his love. Henry Morris said this way, the Christian should pay his debts on time. This does not preclude the borrowing money or the using charge accounts as long as he fulfills the terms of the loan on time. You see, how we handle our money and how we pay our bills on time and how we are hardworking, reliable citizens to society is a witness of the love of Christ in the way we treat others. And there's one debt that we will never be able to fill or pay, and it's the love of how we treat others. You ever uh, run into somebody you owe something to? Maybe you're in the grocery store and you, uh, you take that grocery cart and you round the corner and you see someone that you, uh, you, you need to pay back something and you're like, oh, and you're reminded instantly, I owe them, I forgot to pay them back, or I've been avoiding them because I don't want to pay them back. I mean, am I in one of those situations? But the thing is, we owe everyone, everyone we come in contact with, the love of Christ. Everyone. We owe them the love of Christ because Christ has loved us when we were still enemies. Now, I'm going to be very transparent here. I'm not a perfect pastor. Shocker? No. I'm not a perfect pastor. I'm not a perfect person. And this week, I, I did not have a perfect um, temperament while sitting at my daughter's soccer game. And as the opposing crowd was yelling and shouting I felt that I needed to let them know sarcastically how I felt about that by sitting behind them. And I'm just going to be honest with you, at no point was it in my mind that I owe these parents the love of Christ. You know, but I do. I mean, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm a parent. I'm a father. But more than that, I am washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And if it wasn't for his grace on me and the love that he's shown me, I would be nothing. And so I owe that love and that grace and that tenderness towards people that I don't even know. Every time we come in contact with somebody, we owe them the love of Christ. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. As believers in Christ, we show love by keeping the law in our hearts and in our actions. Romans 9 says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was asked about the law, and he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount all about the law. In Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 22, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. And you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
William Barclay gives a great commentary on this, and he says, It is Paul's claim that if a man honestly seeks to discharge the debt of love, he will automatically keep the commandments. He will not commit adultery, for when two people allow their physical passions to sweep them away, the reason is not that they love each other too much, but they love each other too little. In real love, there is at once respect and restraint which saves from sin. He will not kill, for love never seeks to destroy, but always to build up. It is always kind and will never seek to destroy an enemy, not by killing him, but by seeking to make him a friend. He will never steal, for love is always more concerned with giving than with getting. He will not covet, for covetousness is the uncontrolled desire for the forbidden thing, and love cleanses the heart until that desire is gone. If we truly love our neighbor as ourself, we will fulfill the law. As believers in Christ, we seek to do right even when we have been done wrong. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If you're not loving others, you're treating them wrongly. R.C. Sproul says, neighbor includes all people. Therefore, you shall not commit adultery. If we love our neighbor, we will not commit adultery because adultery is hatred of our neighbor. It is the destruction of our friends and family. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. We do not love our neighbor by helping ourselves to his possessions, nor do we slander people we love or poison others against them. That kind of behavior violates a specific law of God, and most of all, it violates the law of love. If we love our neighbor, we do not steal from them or slander him, nor do we allow ourselves to be jealous or envious or bear false witness against him. If we love somebody, we do not want to harm them. That is the way we are to live as Christians. We are to be known by the love that we have for one another. What a remarkable call that Paul gives to a living sacrifice. To honor, to love neighbor, and finally he says live properly. A living sacrifice lives properly. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. A living sacrifice lives properly. As believers, we live properly anticipating the day of salvation. We live knowing that Jesus Christ will return. We live honoring the government because there is one that is over the government. We have a king of kings and he will return for his children. And so we live properly knowing that this day is coming. Besides this, you know the, the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. You know what? Jesus' return or the day that we see him face to face in eternity, those, those moments are closer now than they've ever been. You're closer now to eternity than you've ever been, any time in your life. 
Paul here is pointing to the fact that we are to live with eternity in our minds and with the understanding that eternity is at our doorstep. This is the way Paul lived. He lived with a constant understanding that his time was short. He said, in every city, imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not count my life as any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. He said, listen, I, I just need to finish the work that God has. This is my life. I know that it's short, and I know that prison and affliction, prison and, affliction and even death awaits me, but my life will be spent for the glory of God. We know what James says in 4.14, yeah, do, not, do you not know that tomorrow, what tomorrow will bring? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised the next hour. Richard Baxter says, spend your time in nothing which you know must be repented of. In nothing on which you might not pray for the blessing of God. In nothing which you could not review at a quiet conscience on your dying bed, in nothing which you might not safely and properly be found doing in death, if death should surprise you in the act. We're to live properly, knowing that eternity can happen at any moment. We're not promised the next breath, so we live properly, awaiting his return, awaiting the time that we get to see him face to face. John MacArthur says, the Christian who is not living a holy and obedient life is a Christian who does not comprehend the significance of the Lord's return. As believers, we live properly avoiding the darkness of sin. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, imagine you were walking home one, one night or walking to your car one night downtown, and, and you know your car's in, on the other block, on the other side of a building, and so you can either stay in the light and you can stay in the street lights and you can walk all the way around the block, or you can take this shortcut through a dark alley. Well, my car's just right there. I'm just going to cut through the dark alley here. Some of you are shaking your head, right? Now, some of you might be able to, to take any mobber that comes at you. I don't know. But some of us, if we started to walk down the dark alley and we, stay, we see someone standing there holding a weapon, what do you do? You turn and run. Okay, this is public service announcement. You look like you didn't know the answer. You turn and run. Okay, you turn and run at that moment because you are avoiding the darkness. Because you know that there's nothing in the darkness that is good for you at that moment. You know that death awaits you. This is kind of what Paul's saying here. Is like, listen, wake up. Walk in the light. Do not think you can shortcut to your destination by cutting through a dark alley and it not affect you. Don't cut through in sinful acts thinking that it's going gonna, it's gonna to gratify you in the end. Don't, don't think that taking this little detour is going to be beneficial for you. Avoid the darkness. And he gives a list of the sins that are in the dark, and he says, orgies and drunkenness. These go together. It's carousing is really the word there. This refers to wild parties that promote sensuality, lust, drunkenness, and immorality. 1 Peter 4.3 says, For the time that 
of that, um, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Those times have passed. Sexual morality and sensuality, the first word here refers to sexual intercourse outside of marriage. The second one means lawless and unrestrained lust. And finally, he gets to quarreling and jealousy, bickering, petty disagreements, and arguing out of a jealous motive. These are relational sins that we often shrug off because they're not nearly as severe as the ones I just mentioned. But these are the ones that plague us all the time as we take that dark path of slander and gossip and quarreling and jealousy. But make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ray Steadman gives a helpful illustration I'll close with. When I get up in the morning, I put on my clothes, intending them to be part of me all day, to go where I go, to do what I do. They cover me and make me presentable to others. That is the purpose of my clothes. It's the same way the apostle is saying to us, put on Jesus Christ when you get up in the morning. Make him a part of your life that day. Intend that he go with you everywhere you go and that he act through you in everything you do. Call upon his resources. Live your life in Christ. Live properly. John Piper said, clothe yourself in Christ. Arm yourself with Christ. Never be without the covering of Christ. Let your friendship with Christ be as close as the shirt you wear. A living sacrifice makes no provision for the flesh. If I was going to give you any application today, I would say, number one, repent. If you know your heart is far from him, if you know that you've got a hard heart when it comes towards certain people and you've slandered, if you've accused, if you've written things that you know do not honor God, repent of that. I would say if there's people in your life that you owe something to, you know you owe them love. Show the love to them. Christ has shown you love. Christ has shown you forgiveness. And make no provision for the flesh. Don't put yourself in situations you know will lead you towards sin. Don't put yourself in conversations you know that are going to bring out things that you know you shouldn't say. Live properly. And honor God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord.